the number one thing is that whether it's successful or not successful, these companies are never a straight line. There's so many ups and downs, right? And it's such a zigzag to get from point A to point B. You are listening to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur, a podcast for founders with ambitious ideas, venture capital investors, and other early believers tell you relatable, insightful, and authentic stories to help you realize your vision. Welcome to the Sure Shot Entrepreneur. In this episode, my guest is Phil Boyer, partner at Crosslink Capital a venture capital firm based in the Silicon Valley. He focuses on investments in enterprise applications, infrastructure, vertical software, and frontier technology. Phil, welcome to the SureShot Entrepreneur. Thanks, Gopi. It's great to meet you, and it's great to be here. Tell me about yourself, starting with, where did you grow up, where did you go to college, and how was your career shaped up? Yeah, sure. So I actually grew up in the Bay Area, I was born in the East Bay. I originally lived in El Cerrito, which is a little town between, kind of right between Oakland and Berkeley. And then I, I did a brief stint in Colorado before returning to the Bay Area, which at that time we moved back to Pleasanton, further east in the East Bay. I grew up in the Bay Area, but I, I, it wasn't like some stories where I was obsessed with technology and startups from a very early age, nothing, nothing like that. I was actually, my parents didn't work in Silicon Valley. They my dad, he was an equine veterinarian, actually. And he worked at the, the racetrack for most of his career, Golden Gate Fields. And then my mom was a PhD in environmental science, and she, she actually worked at various government labs. And then as a consultant later, including Lawrence Livermore Labs in the East Bay. So it wasn't, it wasn't something where I was constantly around startups or uh, Silicon Valley or technology growing up. And I was much more motivated at that time, early days of growing up in music and sports. So I actually, I've been in bands as a musician and writing music ever since I was in third grade. Not everyone knows about me when we, we talk about venture capital and investing, but that was kind of my, one of my first you know loves was for music. And since third grade, wow. Okay. Yeah. It was a third grade talent show at Walnut Grove Elementary. That was my first live show. Also, sports, athletics. I was early on. I was I played almost every sport. Eventually, I gravitated toward wrestling, and I ended up ended up being an all state wrestler in high school, and ended up eventually wrestling at Penn. So those were kind of my first, you know, loves, if you will, and always been kind of very competitive, but also have this kind of creative side to me that I that I like to flex as a kind of musician and songwriter, which is a little bit of a dichotomy thinking about very hyper-competitive wrestler and uh, musician, but those are just two things that I really gravitated toward. And oddly enough, I think full circle to today, venture capital is this interesting, and startups and entrepreneurship is this interesting combination of creativity and, and, and competition, hyper-competitive markets. I feel like that's kind of how I, I landed here eventually, although it wasn't, wasn't something that was on my mind growing up. How did you um, become an investor? Well, I went to Penn. I studied economics. I, I, w- I was interested in business. I always thought I would end up in, in the business side of things. After going to Penn, you're, you're really surrounded by an ecosystem with kind of the Wharton influence in investing and in finance. As a, as a competitive wrestler at Penn, I had a bunch of mentors that had worked in that, in that field as investors or on Wall Street or in finance. And 
it, w- it was something that attracted me as a competitive arena potentially that that I'd want to go to next after after graduating and it wasn't something where I grew up always thinking I was going to be an investor. It was just kind of where I navigated toward. I, right out of right out of college, I ended up moving into. I, I initially landed on Wall Street, as many many Penn grads do, and I started on on a trading floor at, at RBC Capital Markets. And then I, I eventually, when I was there, I eventually kind of navigated over to the research side, and I wasn't super wasn't super interested in in kind of the transactional nature of trading securities and and everything like that. So I I think what interested me a lot more was really digging into the companies. I, when I ended up on an equity research desk covering technology companies, internet companies, I ended up fascinated with uh, the likes of Google, Amazon, LinkedIn, Facebook were more recent public companies and got the opportunity to really dive deep, write about these companies, publish research, and then debate debate them with the hedge funds that would call us and uh, try to tell us we were wrong, whatever thesis. That's what really got me interested in, in technology companies. So it wasn't growing up in the Bay Area. It was actually what I ended up on Wall Street where that, that first happened. But in, in terms of how I got to investing from there, it was I, I realized that covering public internet companies and technology companies that all the interesting ones are actually not public yet. They're private companies, they're early stage companies. Someone told me once, I remember this very vividly, someone someone told me when I was working on that equity research desk that these large public companies, they're like trains, right? And they're, they have to remain on the tracks. They have to report earnings. They have to meet expectations. They got to stay on the tracks and not screw up. But when you're an early stage private company, you act more like a car where you can actually navigate uh, wherever you want, you can change lanes. You can, you know, turn down any any road or alley. You can stop, start, accelerate on a dime. That's really, really the big difference and kind of the advantage that these early stage private companies have. And that really struck me at that time. And that's what kind of led me down the road of uh, I really want to get involved in you know early stage startups and venture capital, which eventually led me to my first kind of jump into venture capital, which we can talk about. Yeah, this is very interesting. You grew up in the Bay Area, but you never got exposed to technology here. Your first window into the world of innovation and internet and everything came from Wall Street, where you were a banker. (laughs) What do you like about venture capital? Yeah, what I love about venture capital, it's honestly, it starts with the founder stories, how these entrepreneurs have gotten to a place where they have so much conviction in their idea that they're going to drop everything to go spend the next possibly decade of their life working on solving this particular problem in a market or building a company they think can really make a dent. I love the whole optimism of it all. I mean, I think that's something that really gravitated me toward venture capital as a career is, you know, you have to be inherently super optimistic about your ability as the the whole David Goliath story, your ability as a, a small, usually starts out kind of two, three person team with an idea, how you're going to go after, attack this market, the odds are just stacked against you, right? And you're, you're going against either creating a, a brand new market that never existed before, or going after taking down a company that's got fundamentally way more resource, dollars, brand, technology, everything in their corner. And you're, you're kind of just the challenger. I love that whole dynamic of betting on the challenger and the underdog and being able to kind of grow with them in that journey. 
I just love that whole that whole aspect of trying to find the those diamonds in the rough that are really the right companies that need to exist and and really helping them get there. So I like getting involved with really ambitious founders from the very early days and obviously providing capital, but being a mentor and a and a guide to help build their company and do everything everything we can to go build a game changing category defining company. It's just very exciting. I, I love that that whole optimistic side of venture capital and that you fundamentally have to be a little bit crazy, honestly, <laughs> as a founder to go to go start up start up a company from scratch and, and with an ambition to go build a billion dollar plus business. There are two schools of philosophies here. One is that for you to be a successful investor, you must have walked through the shoes, uh, lived the life of an entrepreneur, what it is firsthand. And then the other school of thought is that for you to be a successful investor, you need to have training and experience as an investor. It's not necessary that you need to have been an operator, been a founder yourself, but it's actually more important that you can empathize with the situation. If you can understand the journey of a founder, find ways to contribute to their journey positively. So in that two schools of thought, you belong to the school of thought where You've grown up to be an investor as an investor pretty much throughout your career. Do you miss something that, do you feel like you miss something that others in the industry might have who come from the startup side of the world? Yeah, I hear this debate often. I kind of disagree on, I'm not overly dogmatic about quality of investor based on their background. I think there's great examples and you could go through a full list on either side of investors that have been venture capitalists that have been incredibly successful, that were former entrepreneurs, former founders, former operators, and those that have been kind of more career investors. So I I don't think there's kind of this one side or the other. I do think different types of people and each person's different brings a different aspect to a company. And I think in terms of becoming a world-class investor, I think it's about understanding your role as an investor and you're not the operator, right? You're not the one making the day-to-day decisions. What you really need to be doing as an investor, of course, you have to allocate capital well. You have to find incredible teams. You have to do good diligence. You have to bet on winning ideas. Um, You have to allocate capital wisely. Very difficult decisions to make about where the future is heading and in uncertain facts. That's something you have to do. But post-investment, you also got to realize your role on, on the other side of the table, that the founders and the, the operators of the company are running the business, and you are there to help make their lives easier. Sometimes that is through you know providing advice based on having seen a lot of companies go through the, that very same experience or issue in the past. And I think you can get that experience from either having you know operated a company, run a company, in my case, having seen hundreds of companies go through these various stages of from ground floor to uh, the kind of series A stage to the growth stage, and then to the kind of success stage, and maybe eventually being a public company or having a great outcome. Having a lot of pattern recognition and seeing companies go through those various stages repeatedly is also very helpful. I think there's the advice aspect, but then there's also bringing a, a interesting and valuable and proprietary network to bear. It's not about, I'm not going to always have the answer to a difficult question, right? And I think you have to be self-aware and cognizant of that as an investor. And you need to be able to say, but I'm not the best person to answer that question. I'm not the best person to know 
the right path, but I have a Rolodex and a group of people I can plug you into that can really help move the needle that have been through this very experience before and, and do have advice. I also think the other thing is sometimes I've found and seen some investors or board members can be too overbearing in trying to take maybe one specific experience that they had, whether it be with one of their own companies or with the companies that, another company that they're an investor in, and try to oversteer or overcorrect a company in a certain direction when at the end of the day, every experience is pretty unique. And oftentimes, there's a different set of variables. It's a different time in the market. It's a different market altogether. And it's just a different situation. So it's good to obviously bring ideas and past experiences to the table so that you don't make the same mistake twice, but also be cognizant that these are multivariate equations that are always different every single time around. And I think there can be a downside to really trying to be overbearing as an investor board member on making what are sometimes just operational decisions that the, the company needs to make themselves. Yeah, I say that when an entrepreneur changes to become a venture capital investor, it's a big change for them. Some people are able to successfully manage the transition. If they are used to being in the seat, making the front seat, making decisions in the driver's seat, it's hard for them to transition to become a coach on the side and support the players in the field. That's quite difficult for most people. There are, of course, certain disadvantages. This is where I have a problem. Most people say, well, if you don't even know the sport, then how can you be a coach? Of course, if <laughs> you don't know the sport, you cannot be the coach. But you don't need to be the frontline player to know how the sport is played and then become a coach. So you can be a coach by being very close to the sport in other ways. Yeah, I don't think Bill Belichick played football. <laughs> well, he may have played football, but he didn't play in the NFL. Let's put it that way. <laughs> What areas do you focus on for your investments? Well, starting from first principles, my kind of approach is we're at Crosslink, we're very much focused on early stage investing. And for us, that means typically getting involved in the Cedar Series A as an initial investment, usually as a lead or a co-lead investor at those stages. At a very high level, what we're looking for, it's usually in this order, <laughs> a team, you know, market, product, and, and then product market fit. And kind of where you are on on that timeline. Starting at the very foundational level, I'm looking for just world-class founding teams, number one. And I tend to really hone in on and focus on that foundational story. What was the founding insight of the team? How did they arrive at that insight? And why are they uniquely positioned to go execute on building a company within that category? And then the next is obviously market. This is where there's different schools of thought from investors and there's different strategies that work. There's not one, there isn't just one strategy that works, but my strategy is to really understand markets and trends to the point where I know where to put myself into a position to find some of these really compelling founding teams. So I tend to be less, call it thesis driven, meaning I'm looking for this specific company building this specific product in this market. What I do tend to do is so these, these are interesting set of markets or technology trends that are occurring that I'm observing. And I know that there's going to be interesting companies built in these categories. So how do I put myself in a position to meet founders you know, in these markets and in these technology waves or trends to where I can find a founder that has that thesis that is fundamentally unique and different, differentiated to go build a massive company within I'm more, I would say I'm more founder driven as opposed to thesis driven. 
but I do need to, you need to have, the, you need to be deep enough within uh, the market and the technology to understand when you, when you come across that thesis, that this is a winning, you know, insight and this is a winning team that can go execute against that insight. Most VC firms have a priority of large market, great founding team with different set of skill sets, a go-to-market strategy and product roadmap, all of those things. What do you ask founders? What kind of questions do you ask? What do you look for for you to form the conviction? Especially if you don't have an exist specific thesis that you go with, you're looking for excitement during the discussion, especially in the first one or two meetings. Yeah, I do really focus on some of my first set of questions to see how excited I am about a team is how did you arrive this thesis and how did you arrive on you know this idea and kind of what led you to, again, drop everything to go start this company. A lot of times those founding kind of genesis story insights are <laughs> some of the things that help me either have or, or do not have you know the conviction to go make an investment. Has the team really lived the problem? And they really understand the pain that they're going out to solve, because those are the things that will inform them and guide them in their decision making, particularly in the early days when you're starting from you know, zero, you're trying to go from zero to one, having that, that fundamental insight into the market, you know where you're building and you know, architecting the strategy, the team, the product, the go-to-market strategy to align with going and solving that is, is critical. So I look for that. I also just think that CEO to be a founding CEO is incredibly difficult. You kind of have to be a freak of nature, honestly, to be a good founding CEO. So it's that combination of has insight into the market to go build a, a really unique, compelling product, can articulate the vision for the company and what you're building, can sell your initial product to your initial set of customers, and can raise money, obviously, which is a big part of of the business in the early days as well. So all of those attributes, you have to understand technology, product, go-to-market, vision setting, leadership. Those are traits that not a lot of singular people have. So that is you know, a lot of where we focus is just the quality of the CEO in particular, and their ability to you know, recruit world-class people around them, both from employees, investors, and customers and partners in the early days. And I just think that's critically important. Can you give examples of one or two companies? How did you meet the founders? What did they say to you that sparked a thought in you that this has potential and this could be big? Yeah, I think a lot of the, like if you look at companies in our portfolio that have been incredibly successful over the years, companies like Weave or Chime or Coupa Software, ServiceMax, all of these companies, if you go, if you go back to the very early days when they were you know, pitching the company, seeing what this was going to become was very difficult. And I, you know, I look back when I first met the company Weave in our portfolio, which is a Utah-based SMB SaaS business that has, has come a very long way since we invested back in 2015, is now valued at about a billion dollars in the last round and you know, on, on track to be a great long-standing public company, you know, they in the very early days, this was extremely scrappy Utah-based team with a sales-driven culture and a founding CEO that you wouldn't describe as from central casting. And they had bootstrapped a services business early on that addressed, that addressed communications needs for dental practices, <laughs> right? A lot of 
investors passed in the early days because they saw this company that was selling primarily to dental practices, which was their first beachhead market, and saying, that's a niche market. That's not going to be a big business. But what we saw there, I think that was unique, was first of all, there's 200,000 dental practices in North America. So that there's more dental practices than there are Starbucks. So if you look around the street, you see how many Starbucks there are. It's a bigger market than you would think, number one. Number two, the, the problems that these dental practices have and that Weave was solving for them is very applicable to a lot of problems that SMB businesses have in communicating with their customers, in marketing their businesses, in remarketing their businesses, and retaining their customers. The other thing that we saw was that this was something that was selling itself early on. There was not, these were called 10-day sales cycles, selling the product over the phone. The sales proposition was simple. First question, who do you use for your, your phone system? Comcast. Are you happy with them? No. <laughs> okay. Would you rather pay the same amount per month for a, a much better voice over IP phone system that integrates with the systems of record of your business so that you can provide insights, you can understand your customers better, you can remarket your customers better, you can access your customers wherever they are, whether it's SMS, email, uh, phone, and you can automate core parts of your communications with those customers all for the same cost of your of your Comcast bill. Resounding yes. So those were things that we knew were applicable to a lot of businesses. And you kind of just had to see past that this is a this is a niche market kind of pushback and understand that the founding team had gotten to that insight from building a bootstrapping a services business that were addressing critical needs of this customer base. And that was a unique insight that not a lot of people had had at that time. It's great to see real-life examples of how you interacted with startups and the investments that you made. How did these investments turn out? Did they shape up to be the way you expected initially? Did they become way bigger or did they go in a different direction? The number one thing is that whether it's successful or not successful, these companies are never a straight line. There's so many ups and downs, right? And it's such a zigzag to get from point A to point B. From the outside, a lot of these things, like if you look at Weave or a Chime or whatever, you see the the financings and the all the success in the press, and it just looks like a straight line. But in, in reality, it's not. Those challenges that come up, there's there for both of those companies in particular, it was even after our, our investment, the next round was not an easy fundraise. It was the story still was not coming through and not clear enough from the investor community that this is a multi-billion dollar opportunity, despite growing, growing traction. And then there's how do you scale your organization when you're growing, call it three, four X year over year? How do you scale your organization and your executive team to continue to level up over time, which is a hard thing for a startup to do? So there's always friction and there's always challenges, whether it be go to market, going from a lumpy business to a more building a scalable engine. These are very tactical and difficult challenges. There's always going to be friction in doing that. If you look at the companies that have been very successful and the companies that have not been successful, it's just never what it seems like from the outside looking in. And in the early days, the risks that maybe we <laughs> wrote up in our investment memo or thought about are not necessarily the risks that we had thought about going in. And that's just part of the journey. But you have to meet these things where they are as they come and kind of continue to navigate and iterate and just build and, and uh, help the team stay focused 
as they're going out to go do this very difficult thing of building, you know, a five person, two pizza team into a you know, multi-hundred million dollar business and, and then hopefully a billion dollar business. You've been in the Silicon Valley for decades now. A lot of things have changed over the years. How is it different compared to when you started in venture capital? Yeah. Well, so I originally started in early stage investing as about eight, just over eight years ago. And the market has evolved rapidly. Actually, originally, when I first started investing, I started at a, a startup fund. It was a brand new fund based in New York called 104 Ventures. It was kind of how I got my start in venture. And then I uh, was recruited over to Crosslink just about seven years ago and kind of been been here ever since. But just a couple of key things have that I've seen change pretty dramatically in the market. You know, one is the fact that we've gone from having these very small number of uh, hubs. There was Silicon Valley where kind of 80% of Crossing's portfolio used to be based. And then we've evolved full circle to today to where less than 50% of our our current portfolio is Bay Area based. And the, the other 50% plus is in various places throughout the United States and in North America, even in Canada as well. You look at that evolution and I think that part of that is just kind of a almost a democratization of of entrepreneurship and inviting, which I think is great to see, is in just inviting different types of people and founders to the table who maybe in the past wouldn't have thought to go start companies. It's a phenomenon driven by a variety of different factors that includes the rise of digital transformation across a lot of industries, which is something that I and at Crossing we pay a lot of attention to. So you start to see every single industry every company in almost every single industry becoming a technology company and, and becoming a software company. So that has created this just hotbed of new hotbeds of entrepreneurs and talent being attracted to startups and entrepreneurship that maybe weren't there before. So that's the incredible change that's happened across the industry. I also think we've been in a maybe 15, 16 year you know, bull cycle since 2008. So I guess more, more we've been in a 13 plus year kind of bull cycle. I've never seen that. And I think that's, it's something that, you know, if you just look at the evolution of technology investing in general, but in uh, venture capital in particular, it's just been a boom time for a, a long period of time. I think some of the questions that people have are, are we just in a continued and sustained bubble or is this really the new normal? There is just going to be venture capital is going to be be a bigger asset class than maybe it was before. I mean, there there was kind of the early days of venture capital, then there was the bubble burst in the in the late '90s, and then full circle to today. And is this kind of a new normal, or you know, is it just that frothy? I think that's an interesting question to be asking. But it's certainly an evolution that I've seen happen, and going from this being kind of isolated to particular regions in certain universities that really are known as producing a lot of the, the founders in the past. Now it's it's almost every university in every region across country and across the world that are now involved in startups and entrepreneurship. And that's that's a fundamental change and an exciting thing. Where entrepreneurs are located, that has changed. It used to be only in the Silicon Valley, but now they are located in various parts of the world. 
I've also seen the same kind of trends where more than 50% of my portfolio companies are located outside Silicon Valley. I expect that this trend is only going to continue and the bull market is probably going to support that more. Uh, we'll see how far we can go with the bull market. Well, this is very interesting. I want to switch to the next segment and ask you about your community involvement. Is there a nonprofit organization you are passionate about? Which one? Yeah, so there's one that not just myself, but our entire firm is passionate about. And it's an organization that is set up as a nonprofit and, and is fully sponsored that Crosslink runs called Alpha. It's the Alpha Network. You can go to the, the website is alpha.network. But what this is, it's something that we at Crosslink spend a lot of time working on. We have two full-time resources within Crosslink you know, that run this network and manage this network. And we're doing roughly about 60 events every single year out of this network. So it's very robust. And the whole idea and design of Alpha is to meet founders where they are and help them along their journey. The events can range from anything from a sector-specific topic, such as putting on an event, or I'm helping plan an event in the data ops landscape, where we're going to invite some of the most exciting you know, early-stage companies, as well as later-stage, more successful startups in that category, and then bring in you know, customers and uh, partners and advisors and thought leaders within that landscape to come discuss the trends and what's happening within data ops landscape and some of the pain points that are being solved in that world. So it could be anything from sector topic through more of a, a functional topic and, and company building topic. So something like, how do you build a customer support organization in a remote world? How do you drive customer success in a remote, a remote world? Or how do you drive digital native sales from in transition from enterprise sales into digital native or product-led growth? Topics like that, that early stage companies can really benefit from and founders can really benefit from learning from folks that have successfully built companies with those strategies or within these markets and kind of doing it in a way that is 100% candid. The, the part of the design of Alpha is we wanted to get away from these conferences where people are paying $1,000 to go to XYZ conference and walk around an event, not really meet anyone that compelling or be sold via booths at certain products. I think like that's just not all that valuable. What is valuable is getting around the table with 15 to 20 other founders talking about a real topic, a real challenge in their business that they're seeing, sharing insights, helping each other out. That's where the real stuff comes from. And then fostering real connections, right? And it could be lifelong connections, or even maybe you'll at an alpha event, you might meet your next acquirer or your next customer, or your next partner. So that's something that we spend a, long, a lot of time on is building this alpha network community. It's something that we do that to give back to the community as well as support our portfolio companies. And obviously we get a lot of value out of it as well. Well, this is great. It's uh, good to see that Crosslink supports the ecosystem in a positive way by organizing events for founders. Thank you so much for spending time with me today on this podcast. Thanks for sharing real life, authentic stories. I look forward to sharing your nuggets of wisdom with the world. Thanks, Gopi. It was great chatting. I appreciate the time. Thank you for listening to the SureShot Entrepreneur. I hope you enjoyed listening to real-life stories about early believers supporting ambitious entrepreneurs. Please subscribe to the podcast and post a review. Your comments will help other entrepreneurs find this podcast. I look forward to catching you at the next episode.